me to the passage that Dan just read in Titus chapter 2. Again, it's towards the end of your New Testament. If you find First and Second Timothy, next you'll find Titus, page 966 in your pew Bible. Titus chapter 2. This morning's sermon is entitled, A Grace That Grows. Grace That Grows. So I hope that you're there or close to it. Titus chapter 2. We will be looking at verses 11 through 14 and learning about a grace that grows. Let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. Father, thank you for the morning. We pray that you would be with us, that your Spirit would teach us from the word that you inspired. Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher, our guide, that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, make us willing to understand and make our hearts soft so that we might be obedient to you. Father, in particular, as we come to this passage, it's such a significant passage that teaches us about your grace. It teaches us about the salvation that we can receive through faith in Christ that is by your grace alone and that is only received by faith that it brings about a deliverance. It brings about salvation. It brings about the forgiveness of our sins and so much more. But even more than that, it is a grace that grows, that when that grace that takes root in our heart, the outworkings are a godly life and good works. Father, we pray that you would teach us about our own hearts to see if we have this kind of grace, this Grace that comes about only by trusting and believing in the gospel. And may you work that growth into our hearts and into our lives. We thank you for what you've done, and we anticipate sharing communion together as we remember the body and blood of our Savior, Jesus, given to us as a gift of grace, received only by faith. We ask it in that name, the name above all names, the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. Well, the Puritans had a a very interesting way to to talk about the power that really was behind the, the, the change of life that a person makes when they trust in Christ as their Savior and then begin to follow him as their Lord. They called this change of life, this power of a changed life, the power of new affections, the power at work in us, the power of new affections. And they drew this idea from the live oak tree, from a a species of the live oak tree, which you'll see behind you. Uh, The live oak tree was very plentiful where I grew up, in particular in central Texas. And as you moved into east Texas, uh, you'll you'll see them in Florida, but they are a a magnificent tree. And the Puritans kind of got this idea of the power of new affections from something that this oak tree does with its leaves. What you find out is that this kind of oak tree clings to its leaves. Even after the leaves are, 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 are dead, they cling to the branch. And only in spring, only when new life comes, when new life surges through the branches, are these dead leaves finally forced off and new, green, healthy leaves come to life. Now, when the Puritans looked at the changed life of a Christian, they likened the work of grace in the gospel in the believer to this kind of a tree. They said only when the old man, only when the old person person with his, his old life, his old affections, his old behavior die with 
Christ are they then progressively replaced in our life with new affections, hence the power of new affections. And not only new affections, but new godly behaviors and good works that they grow in the place of our old lifestyle and our old works. Well, today we find ourselves in Titus chapter 2, and we're going to explore four short verses, verses 11, 12, 13, and 14, as we explore what I'm convinced of is a foundational truth about Christianity. And that truth is simply this. A grace that saves is a grace that grows. You could put it another way. A grace that saves us from the penalty of our sins is also a grace that saves us from the power of our sin in everyday life. You could put it this way. When the gracious gospel seed truly takes root in our lives and germinates into new spiritual life. It inevitably grows the roots and the shoots of two things, godliness and good works. This should be a repeated refrain if you've been with us for any time. Because if you recall, there are three major themes found in the book of Titus. And they're all three Gs. Now what are the three Gs? You remember the first one is what? Grace, right? And the second one is what? Godliness. And the third is good works. The three G's that we've been talking about every week of grace that leads to godliness and good works show up here in the smack dab center of this book of Titus in chapter 2. Notice in verse 11. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared. That is God's grace. Verse 12, it teaches us to live godly lives in this present age. That is godliness. Verse 14, it makes us eager to do what is good. That is good works. So here's where we're going today. As we take a look at this really key central section in the book of Titus, two sections emerge from these short three verses. First of all, in verses 11 through 13, Paul shows us the results of grace. Three results of grace. So how do you know when God's grace, when salvation has come into your life? Well, Paul is going to share three inevitable results of the grace of God in the life of a Christian. Then he's going to show us not only three results of God's grace, but three purposes of God's grace. Three reasons for which God has given us his grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So three results of grace in the life of a Christian, followed by three purposes. Why did God give us this grace in the first place? Well, let's begin in verse 11. In verse 11 through 13, we see the results of grace. Three results of grace emerge from this passage. And I'll identify them this way. Number one, the first result is salvation. Salvation. We see that in verse 11 which refers to freedom from sin's penalty. That is, God saves us from the just penalty that we deserve of our sin. The first result of God's grace in our life is salvation. Secondly, sanctification, which is simply a theological term which means freedom from sin's power. While in salvation we are freed from sin's penalty, in sanctification we are progressively being set free from the power of sin in our everyday life, in our everyday choices. Third, salvation and sanctification And the third result is anticipation. Anticipation, which looks forward to the freedom that we will one day enjoy as Christians from the very presence of sin. Freedom from the very presence of sin. 
So let's take a look at verse 11, where we see the first result of God's grace in our life, and that is salvation. Notice what verse 11 says. It says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation. There's our word. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. So here, Paul introduces this key section with a major theme, and that is the theme of grace. Notice, Paul says in verse 11, for the grace of God, the grace of God has appeared. What is the grace of God? What is he speaking about when he says God's grace has seemingly burst onto the scene in human history? What is God's grace? Well, simply put, God's grace is his unmerited favor. It is his unearned goodness and kindness to us. It is when God does something for us at his own expense that we quite simply do not deserve. That is what God's grace is. Now we see two things in verse 11 about God's grace. Because Paul's not just talking generally about God's grace. He's talking about a very specific manifestation of the grace of God. Notice the first thing we see about God's grace. For the grace of God has what? has appeared. God's grace has appeared. When you look at the word in the Greek, it's where we get our English word epiphany. Epiphany. And in the uh, Greek language, it was used to speak of the Greek gods and goddesses of the Greek pantheon. And it, was ref- it, it referred to an appearing of one of these Greek gods or goddesses. They would break down into a situation on earth. There was trouble on earth. There was difficulty. Somebody was in danger. Somebody needed rescuing. So somebody say like uh, the Greek god Apollo would have an epiphany. He would appear on the scene. He would show up in human history and reach down to, to solve a problem. Paul is telling us something about the grace of God. He's telling us that there was a point in time in history when not the, the Greek pantheon of gods and goddesses. No, the, the true God, the one God in the person of Jesus Christ appeared. There was an epiphany, so to speak. Paul talks about the grace of God appearing in the person, life, work, death, resurrection, and ascension of the person of Jesus Christ, breaking in to human history. And then the gospel that is preached, that even is still preached today. And so Jesus has has, has shown up on human history. Similarly, Jesus has looked down on our plight, on the problem, the major problem in human history. He's looked at our grave peril and he has done something about it. He has come down. He has appeared. Here we see that God's grace in verse 11 is personified as a savior. Notice the grace of God has appeared as a savior There is an epiphany of God's grace in the person and work of Jesus. But not only that, but when God entered into human history in the person of Jesus Christ, he did something. Notice, for the grace of God has appeared, that that does what? Offers salvation. He offers salvation to all people. You could say it this way, that the appearing of God's grace is also the offering of the opportunity to have God's salvation to all of us who will believe. Now, notice, Jesus Christ broke into human history and he offers salvation to everyone. What does that imply about everyone? 
It implies that everyone is in danger. It implies that everyone needs saving, right? Because if Jesus Christ came down to offer salvation, that implies something about me, and it implies something about you. And what it implies is that we all need saving. Here particularly, we need saving from sin's penalty. We need saving from sin's penalty. That is God's just, eternal wrath against our sin in hell. I think of people who, during the floods, remember back, I think this is now the 10-year anniversary of the floods of Katrina in, down, in, uh, down in the south, there in New Orleans, right? And we sent a, a team of people who were firsthand and who saw that. Remember in, in, in that scene, many people evacuated the city. They, they took the warnings, but many people did not. They, they stayed in their homes. And I have images in my mind of people on the rooftops of their homes, right? Because the floodwaters were coming, right? Death was imminent. The waters were rising and people climbed up to the very rooftop of their home and they needed what? They needed salvation, right? They needed saving. And so there are images on the TV screen of helicopters flying to offer a a rescuing hand or boats coming alongside to take these stranded refugees, so to speak. They needed rescuing. They needed saving. But let me ask you something. When that helicopter came down and when the boat pulled up, so to speak, it was an offer of salvation, was it not? It was an offer of salvation, But the people didn't have to take it. My guess is most of them did. But they had to step out in faith and get in the boat. They had to step out in faith and and take the, the hand of the helicopter, so to speak, to be rescued. This is what Paul is saying. The appearing of Jesus Christ as our Savior by God's grace is the helicopter who has come down to save us from the penalty, the just penalty that you and I deserve for our sins, and yet it offers salvation. It offers it. You and I have to take the nail-scarred hand of Jesus Christ as he reaches down to save us from the penalty of our sin. We must respond in faith. We can't earn it. We don't merit it. We don't work for it. Notice, Paul says, the grace of God has appeared. When Jesus Christ came to earth, lived a perfect life, and died a sinless death, rose again, he offers us salvation. We have to take it, and it's all of the grace of God. It's nothing that we can earn. It's nothing that we can merit. We don't work for it. So Paul here and elsewhere compares God's grace and, God's, uh, and our, our works. He, he says there are two ways that you can go about salvation. You can receive it by grace, or you can work for it by works. So I want to ask you, what is your approach to being right with God. How do you approach God? Do you approach God as a staircase or an escalator? Just think about the difference between those two things, right? You want to get upstairs, and there's a a staircase, a set of stairs on the left, and there's an escalator on the right, and, and you could take either one, right? If you choose to take the staircase, what are you choosing to do? You are choosing to exert your own power to to walk up the stairs to get where you want to go, right? You are earning it in a sense. You are working for it by your own strength. You're trusting in your own two legs to get you up the stairs, right? However, if you take the, the second option, option B, it's an escalator. What are you choosing to do? Are you choosing to go up on your own power, Well, no, of course not. What you're doing is you're taking a step of faith. And you take a step of faith and you get on the escalator and then what do you do? You ride it on up, right? You are placing your faith in the power of the escalator to get you up. Friends, let me ask you, how do you approach getting to heaven? 
Do you approach it like a staircase? Or do you approach it like an escalator? Is it God's grace at work? Or is it your own works? Is it your own merit? Do you try to, by your own strength, take this, the stairs by your own faithfulness and good works? Or do you simply rest? Do you take that step on the escalator, which is Jesus Christ, to get you into heaven, trusting in what he has done, in his power, and in his strength? Well, the first result of God's grace, Paul says, is that it brings salvation. It brings salvation, freedom from the penalty of sin. But praise be to God, that is not all. Because not only does God's grace bring about salvation, but it also brings about sanctification. Notice verse 12. It teaches us, still referring to the grace of God, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While salvation is freedom from sin's penalty, sanctification, which Paul is talking about here in verse 12, is freedom from sin's power in our everyday choices in life. And in verse 11, while God's grace was personified as a, as a, a, powerful, a powerful savior, here in verse 11, God's grace is personified as a teacher. Did you notice what the grace of God does? The grace of God teaches It teaches us something. Now, in Greek, the word is uh, paideno, which sounds familiar maybe to a couple things. Uh, Maybe you've heard of the word pedagogue. The word pedagogue simply refers to a teacher, an instructor, who comes alongside you to instruct you and to teach you something. Paul is saying that God's grace is like that. When you become a Christian, when you're saved from sin's penalty, then God's grace not only saves you from that, but God's grace comes alongside you and teaches you and helps you grow to have freedom from sin's power. Now, if you're familiar with any of the Star Wars movies, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm a Star Wars fan. I will freely and openly admit admit it. Uh, I like Star Wars. Now, if you're familiar with Star Wars, you may be familiar with this this Greek word, paideno, because I don't know if it's an exact correlation, but in Star Wars, there are Jedi apprentices, and I'll show a picture. There are Jedi apprentices, and there are Jedi masters, right? And uh, what, what is a, a Jedi apprentice called? Do you happen to recall, those of you Star Wars fans? A Padawan, excellent, very good, yes. So a learner in Star Wars is called a, a Padawan. I kind of wonder if they get that from the Greek word paideno, because it sounds very similar. So in Star Wars, there are Padawan learners, and they have Jedi masters. This is, of course, Obi-Wan Kenobi, one of the best, strongest uh, Jedi masters, and he taught all sorts of people. Paul says, and we can move on from Star Wars, Paul says that God's grace is, is like that, right? That it comes alongside us. It is our teacher, and we are its Padawan. So what does God's grace teach us? Two things. First of all, God's grace teaches us to say no. It teaches us to to say no, namely, to ungodliness and to worldly passions, which refers to ungodly behavior and then the ungodly desires that fuel those behaviors. Listen, this is a vital truth. If you are, are a believer and you're born again, this is something that is vital to your Christian growth. It's very key that we understand that God's grace doesn't just forgive us of our sin, though praise be to God that it does. God's grace causes us to fight against sin. So when the gospel takes root in your life, 
It not only forgives, but it causes you to fight. It causes you to fight sin. It makes us, at the deepest level of our being, to hate what God hates and to love what God loves because we are new creatures. We have new dispositions. We have a new heart. As the Puritans say, we have the power of new affections. So it teaches us to say no. But not only that, it teaches us to say yes. God's grace teaches us to say yes, namely, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. That is, it teaches us to be self-controlled inwardly. So in our own persons, we are progressively able to say, no, don't do that. No, don't think that. No, don't respond that way. It teaches us to say no inwardly, but not only that, it teaches us to be upright, which, de- which describes a, a disposition towards others. That is, we treat other people rightly, right? We treat other people like they want to be treated. And then thirdly, it teaches us to live godly lives, which is to be reverent upwards in our pursuit of obedience to God. Consequently, when we say yes to these things, we do so because our hearts have been so gripped by the grace of God that we want to please him. So God's grace brings salvation, right? Freedom from sin's penalty. But not only that, it brings sanctification, progressive freedom from sin's power. But not only that, notice verse 13. It brings anticipation. Paul says this, it teaches us to say no to ungodly and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, verse 13, while, while we wait. What are we waiting for? While we wait For the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So while salvation is freedom from sin's penalty, and sanctification is freedom from sin's power here, anticipation is that we wait and long for the return of Christ. And when Christ returns and raises those of us who have placed our faith in him, we will experience freedom from sin's presence. That is, you you and I will live lives where we will never, ever, ever sin again. Just ponder that for one moment. We will live lives without sin for all eternity and raised, resurrected, new, eternal bodies. It's no wonder Paul calls it our blessed hope. It is our blessed hope. Grace was personified as a savior in verse 11. Grace was personified as a teacher in verse 12. But now grace is personified as the anticipated return of a loved one. You see that language? We are waiting for one whom we love, Jesus Christ, to return to the earth. I had a dog, and I've shared this story before, but I'll share it again. I had a dog in college, and his name was Dexter. He was a Cocker Spaniel. If you know anything about Cocker Spaniels, they're very cute and curly. They have long ears, which is their hallmark trait. Typically, you cut off their tails, so they have a little nubbin of a tail. Cute dogs, very friendly, great, great pet. I had a dog in college, and I would go off to class, 
and other things as well, right? But of course, I would go off to class in college. And then when I get home, uh, back to my house, it was, it was not uncommon. Uh, we had these large windows kind of facing the road. And so my dog, my faithful partner in life, until I got married, of course, Dexter, uh, was there awaiting my return. He was eagerly awaiting my return. I would drive in uh, and, to, and park the car, and I could see him in the window just waiting just waiting for me to get here. And I would open the door, and he would bounce and jump and lick and scratch and, uh, and, and do all sorts of things. One of, the, one of the bad things about Cocker Spaniels is that, generally speaking, they kind of have a loose bladder. So when they get very excited, they kind of have this really bad habit of peeing all over you, okay? So they're excited, and they just, boom, they explode with pee everywhere. And so it was, it was not all that uncommon for me to, hi, Dexter, just pat him, and he'd lick, and psh, my shoes are all now peed on, right? But it's okay. He anticipated my return. He couldn't wait. So I replaced the, the dog with kids. I've got kids now, four of them, in fact. Three of them can walk. One of them eventually will walk, Lord willing. And uh, though not as often, sometimes they anticipate my return from work. So I, I, I get home, and if they notice, maybe they're playing outside or they're out the door, and they see my car pull in. Well, they don't pee on my shoes, right? But, but they're excited. They run out, Daddy, Daddy, my little one, Dad, 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 Dad. And they come, and they, and they come, and I, I lift them and throw them and hug them. And, and as a dad, it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's such a great thing to, to be so anticipated, to have your return anticipated. I'm sure my wife anticipates my return so I can take them off of her hands, right? So everyone anticipates my return. You know, it's a good thing. Paul says that we should be like Dexter, that we should be like my kids, that we should live our Christian life on tiptoe, so to speak, eagerly looking, anticipating the return of Christ. And on that day, we will be free from sin's very presence. So friend, how do you feel about the return of Christ? Do you put yourself in the company of Paul who said in 2 Timothy 4, right? All who have loved his appearing. Do you love his appearing? Salvation, sanctification, anticipation. These are the three results of God's grace in my life and in yours. And so friends, do you see those in action? Can you say for sure that you have experienced God's salvation? Are you experiencing progressive sanctification? And are you living on tiptoe for the return of Christ? Well, we've seen three results of grace, and we're going to close with three purposes of grace. Paul moves from, hey, this is what grace looks like in your life if you're, if you're a Christian. He then moves to explain three purposes of God's grace. Why did God send Jesus to die? That's the question that Paul asks, and he has three answers. For what purpose did Jesus come? They all start with the letter P. Christ died to purchase something, to purify something, and to promote something. Notice all of these in verse 14. First of all, Christ died to purchase us from wickedness. Verse 13, while we wait the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who, verse 14, who gave himself for us. Why? who gave himself for us, number one, to redeem us from all wickedness. This is language taken straight from the slave market of Paul's day. It was a term that simply referred to purchasing a slave in order to set him free. Paul applies this imagery to you and I as Christians. And he says, listen, we were enslaved to wicked deeds. 
wickedness was our slave master in our thoughts, in our will, in our action before we came to Christ. You could say that we were on the slave block of sin, right? We were on the slave block of sin in our everyday life. And Jesus died to pay the price for our freedom to set us free from our wicked motives, from our wicked thoughts, from our wicked actions, from our wicked deeds. Once, we had no choice but to sin. We were slaves to sin, but now we are set free as believers to choose whether to make sin our master or Christ our master. This is what Paul meant in Romans 6, 17, 18, and 22. I just want to read it real quickly. Paul says this, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that, was now, that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness, the benefit you reap leads to what? Holiness. And the result is eternal life. Christian, Christ died so that sin doesn't have to rule over you. You are free to pursue him and to pursue holiness by the Spirit's enablement. So Christ died to purchase us from something, to purchase us from wickedness. But not only that, but to purify, to purify us. Notice, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and, number two, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. The image is this. The image is that we were dirty from the stain of sin, but Christ's blood washes us clean from the guilt and the shame of sin so that we could be his own. He wanted to bring him to us, but he didn't want to bring someone who is dirty. And so he cleans us by his death. While the word redemption just before, speaks to Christ removing Christians from the control of sin. To purify here addresses the removal of the defilement of sin from the Christians. I'm sure uh, if you once had kids, or maybe you currently have kids, you uh, have experienced or are experiencing something that we experience fairly regularly. And that is uh, children's clothing that are stained from all sorts of things. Grass, dirt, vomit, pee, well, it'll stop there. All sorts of yuckiness, right? And, and uh, sometimes it stains, right? It stains the clothes. So we wash them, and it's still stained. And so my wife, she says uh, often, I feel like I live my life trying to get stains out of my kids' clothes. Because she does. Because we've got four of them, and they're all messy. So, so what does she do? Well, she tries different things. Bleach, detergent, OxyClean, oftentimes with mixed results. Sometimes the stain is removed. Sometimes the stain is not removed. Church, when Jesus purifies the stained garments of his church, no stain remains, right? No stain remains. This is why we sing, Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as what? Snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So Christian Christ died so that you would not have to live with the guilt and the shame of past, present, or even future sins. We can know that we are forgiven, that we will be forgiven, and we glory in the cleansing shower of God's grace in our minds and in our conscience. But not only that, Christ died to purchase us, to purify us, and number three, to promote good deeds in our life. Verse 14, who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify 
for himself a people that are his very own. And number three, who are eager to do what is good. Jesus not only purchases us from evil deeds in the present and purifies us from evil deeds in the past, but he makes us eager to do what is good. Literally, he makes us a zealot for good deeds. So Christian, Christ died so that you would be crazy about being and doing good, about pursuing godliness and pairing godliness with good works in your home, in your school, in your community, and in your world. We are to be a force for good, right? We are to be zealous for good works. Pastor Chuck Swindoll closes our time as we prepare for communion with these words. He says, like the live oak tree, as we embrace the foundational doctrines of, of grace, old leaves begin to fall. Our natural desires are replaced by supernatural cravings for God's love and truth and grace. A maturity develops. A sheer love for the Savior pushes out the old, dead, rotten leaves to make room for divine new ones. In the same way, when we find ourselves clinging to the old ways, we must reignite our hearts with godly affections, the power of new affections. For when we do so, he says, we embrace new life again, and we do it all by God's grace. Let's pray.